from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Hear now these words from the 139th Psalm. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts, you who knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Our second text is a letter to the Colossians. The second chapter, verses 6 through 15, page 189 in the New Testament, if you'd like to follow along as I read aloud. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him, who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him. When he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, 
triumphing over them in it. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I've said this for a couple of weeks now, but, but I am convinced that God has endowed human beings with fundamental desires that separate us from any other species in the created ordered. In other words, what God has done is God has uh, endowed us with fundamental desires that make us human. So creatures who desire such things are human beings. We understand what it means to be human as we begin to understand these particular desires. And I think that God has etched some desires on our hearts. I think God has etched some desires on our minds and deep within our guts and in our bones. And when we reflect on these desires, when we evaluate these desires, when we pray over these desires, when we try to understand these fundamental desires that God has given the human species, we begin to get a glimpse in some small way of what it means to be created in the image of God. And to be created in the image of God, in part, means that we have the capacity, by God's grace, to desire what God desires. In other words, we have the capacity as, as human beings to want what God wants, that it is possible for our will and the divine will to align. But we're also keenly aware that our desires, all of these God-given desires that God has endowed us with, etched in our hearts, minds, and guts, these desires can become badly distorted. These desires can become malformed. And I've said it for a couple of weeks now, I'll say it again. When our desires, when these human desires, these noble desires get out of whack, when our desires become distorted, bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens in our lives and bad stuff happens in the world. And so we need an intervention. We need Christ to speak into our lives in a particular way so that we may find these desires that were once distorted and malformed to be reshaped, to be reformed, so that our desires may ultimately align with the intention of God. And when our desires align, it's then that we recognize and receive our full humanity. It's when we can live the fullness of life that Jesus talked about in the Gospel of John 10.10, that he had come to give us life to the full. When these desires align with God's intention, we experience that fullness of life. We experience what it really means to be a human being. So if you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, we are now in the fourth week of a 10-week sermon series. Following an introductory sermon, uh, we considered this first desire, the desire to be loved. We talked about that fundamental desire that's etched in our hearts, this desire to be loved. The following week, we talked about the desire to be valuable, the desire to know that we have something of value to bring into the world. 
And this week, we now hone in on another desire, a fundamental desire that God has endowed us with, and that is the desire to be authentic. The desire to be authentic. From a theological point of view, I believe that God has etched this desire in our guts. It's in our bones. It's in our DNA. And, and God has etched this desire in such a way that has the human species longing for beauty. That we long for beauty. That we long for the bona fide. That we long for the genuine. That we long for the good. We long for the truly true and the really real. We long for authenticity. Etched in our gut is a desire for the ideal and a life that would transcend the mundane and, and even transcend the ordinary. Etched in our gut is this instinct that there is something more. Deep down in our guts, we know that something is missing and that we have to go after that thing, whatever it is. We're not quite sure what it is, but we will pursue it. We need to attain it. We need to discover it because we become convinced that one we, once we find that thing, whatever it is, then we will truly be fulfilled. We will have a genuine life. We will have an authentic life. It'll make all the difference for us in the world. Etched in our gut is that something is missing and we need to find it if we are going to find fulfillment in our time. Scholar Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, describes people of the West who've been living in the last 50 years or so as those living in the age of authenticity. He calls ours the age of authenticity. In Taylor's view, what he's saying is, is that expressive individualism and the quest for personal fulfillment is the engine that makes the, the West run. It's what makes the Western world run. No longer are we uh, beholden to institutions. No longer are we beholden to economic theories. No longer are we beholden to, uh, to, to political theories. Uh, we now lift the individual above the, the collective, and, and we have this deep desire to express ourselves and to find individual meaning in the world. This expressive individualism, this quest for personal fulfillment is what turns the world on its axis. And, and what Taylor is talking about, or what he's not talking about, I should say, is the quest for material possessions. He's not talking about uh, the desire and the quest and longing for more stuff because deep down inside, right, you would, if we did a little poll, I think we'd have 99% on this. Deep down inside, we know that personal fulfillment does not come in our possessions. It doesn't come with our stuff. We know that the authentic life is not necessarily wrapped up in the material World, We know that the authentic life, we know the genuine, we know the good transcends stuff. We know it transcends anything that we collect in our hands. I, I like the song from the movie musical, The Greatest Showman. One of the songs goes like this, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough. Never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it will never be enough. Never be enough for me. 
You see, the idealist on the quest for authenticity knows better than to think that the purpose and meaning of life is wrapped up in material possessions. We know better than this. We will not succumb or will try not to succumb to that shiny lie. And that's why we resonate with characters such as Salinger's Holden Caulfield. I've been thinking a lot about reading lists as kids have gone back to school and, and how the catcher in the rye continues uh, to, to be on reading lists in this country and throughout the world, right? Salinger's Holden Caulfield is not on a quest for stuff, but he's on a quest for his identity. He's on a quest for his purpose. Maybe if we think of more contemporary literature, we'll think of Rowling's Harry Potter. He too is on a quest for his identity, but even more, he's on a quest to find out why his parents died. And he's on a quest to figure out his role in this plan of destiny to defeat Voldemort once and for all. <laughs> right? Caulfield and Potter, these characters, we resonate with them. Because they're not on a quest for riches. They're not on a quest for possessions. They're on a quest for something so much more rich and valuable that will shape their lives to the core. We resonate with their quest because in it we see a quest for authenticity. We see it as a quest for the genuine and so we press on, right? We are people who seek to create and, and discover beauty in the world. We go after a future that's distinct from the past. We seek to understand our place in the world. We want to know why we're here. We, we want to know what we're doing. We want to know what our purpose is. We long for meaningful experiences, right? Uh, we create meaningful experiences for ourselves and for loved ones that will transcend the ordinary and we pursue what we have come to believe is essential to a purpose-filled life. We will quest for authenticity. Several years ago, David Brooks made the case that this desire for authenticity is one that, that dominates the American dream. He says it's one that actually dominates our national consciousness. He wrote a book entitled On Paradise Drive, and in it he says this, we behave, he's talking about Americans, we behave the way we do because we live under the spell of paradise. We are the inheritors of a sense of limitless possibilities, raised to think in the future tense. I love that line. We're raised to think in the future tense and to strive toward the happiness we naturally expect will eventually come to us. He goes on to say that we Americans may not be chasing the same thing, but we're all chasing something. What defines us is not the object of our pursuit, but it's the pursuit itself. It's our movement, and as he says, I love this line, our tendency to head out, to head out. Right, this rings true, at least in my understanding of our national history, from, from the Puritans who headed out to escape religious persecution, to quest for the ideal of religious freedom, to Western expansion, as we saw in our great nation, as people moved westward into the great unknown, as far as the sun would set is where they wanted to go. We think of immigrants from generations past and, and immigrants today who have headed out, right, to flee famines, 
to flee violence, to flee war, to, to flee economic despair for the chance of that, that sacred trust we hold as a nation, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? In our national consciousness, it's, it's hard to avoid. We have been conditioned to think that the authentic is always on the horizon. It's always out there. I'm compelled by Brooks's idea that, that we're conditioned to live life in the future tense. But I think it echoes in this desire for the authentic and the genuine. But there is a trap here, isn't there? Because when you live life in the future tense, you can become really, really restless. You can become restless because the really real and the truly true can feel as if they are so far beyond our grasp, right? We start to think in our own gut that our lives are not authentic. They're not genuine. That the authentic and the genuine is not here yet. And so, so we become convinced that we don't have what we need. We become convinced that something is missing. And hopefully, it will be discovered tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes, and tomorrow becomes today, and we look at our life and we say, well, this isn't it. So it must come tomorrow. And then another tomorrow becomes today, and we say, well, this isn't it either. And the loop just continues to go on and on and on. It reminds me of that great uh, song, Rolling Stone Magazine named it as one of its top 100 songs of all time. I still haven't found what I'm looking for by the Irish rock band U2. I put some of the lyrics in the order for worship towards the back. I think the lyrics capture this restlessness that so many of us feel and this inability to really grasp or hold on to the really real and the truly true. I've climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields. I have run. I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls. I have kissed honey lips, felt healing in the fingertips. I've spoke with tongues of angels, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And it's here, I think, that we begin to see how this noble desire to be authentic can become distorted ever so slightly. In our quest for what is missing, in our quest for what is missing, and what we've become convinced of is missing, in that quest, we are in danger of ignoring that which we already have. We can turn our backs on what has already been found, right? If you extrapolate on U2's song, you could say it like this. We might miss the fact that we have the mountains. You might miss the fact that we have the fields, that we have the cities, that we have the healing, that we have the romance, that we have the angels, and yet we turn our backs on it, thinking that what we need is not there, and press on to what we think is missing that will be given to us into the future. The gift that God has given us in today and all it holds can be ignored for the promise of what is yet to come. The beauty of our ordinary daily lives, all of that that has the potential of purpose. The beauty of our ordinary lives that has the potential of purpose right within it can be sacrificed to be found something that will come tomorrow. I remember it clearly about 
three, four months ago. I was sitting in I-75 traffic. I picked up the boys, our son Johnny and our son Luke. They were in the car after the day at school. It was a Friday afternoon, so of course, I'm at a dead crawl in I-75 coming back to Midtown. And I'm trying to pry how their day went out of their lips, getting one-word answers here and there. And I had a moment, very transparent moment here. I thought to myself, I can't wait until Johnny drives. <laughs> I can't wait till he's the one who's going to be stuck in, in midtown traffic. He's the one who's going to get stuck on I-75. Katie and I calculated it. We gained three hours in our day. Hallelujah. Now that Johnny drives. But I had a moment recently. A very subtle, quiet, but powerful moment as I watch Johnny and Luke drive out of the driveway and head up to school. All of a sudden, I missed carpool. I know some of you are in the throes of carpool right now, but I missed the ordinary car rides. I missed getting stuck in traffic. And what I really miss are those moments. See, sometimes, I know this is anecdotal and I know this is a bit mundane, but it makes the point, right? Sometimes in our life, we are constantly looking ahead for what is to come tomorrow that we miss the gift of the day. That authenticity, that the genuine, that the bona fide, that the really real and the truly true might be sitting right next to us. See, when we start to live life in the future tense, we can ignore the gifts that are right in our midst, the mountains and the fields and the romance and the relationships and the angels. What then also starts to happen is that sin begins to creep in. We start comparing ourselves to others. We lose our joy and we begin to criticize and we begin to even loathe our own lives. And the sin of envy begins to distort this desire even more. Will Willimon was the chaplain at Duke University. He wrote a book on the seven deadly sins, and in it he begins to talk about envy. And one of the things he says about envy is that envy is a diminishment of ourselves. In envy, we actually diminish ourselves, and that dim diminishment feeds a shame, I think. I think that diminishment feeds a melancholy, a loss of joy in our lives, a loss of our ability to see the gift that is today, not just that the gift of tomorrow. And we've hit this place, I, I call it sort of the rock bottom level of when the desire to be authentic gets out of whack. That rock bottom level makes us convinced that our life is insignificant. We begin to miss the beauty of the moment, the beauty of the ordinary. We begin to have envy, so we lose joy. We lose contentment. We look at others and say they have what I want. And we hit that bottom place, that dark place, and say that our lives are insignificant. And it's right here, friends, that we need an intervention. It's here that I think we need Christ to speak a reforming word into our lives. And the first word I think Christ wants to speak to us this morning is this, that you and I are significant. I'm not talking some 1960s hippie kind of significance. 
feel good about. I'm talking about a divine significance that is imprinted on each and every one of our lives. The psalmist in the 139 iteration writes that our lives are under the sovereign care of God. Every breath, every hour, every relationship is a gift and it's under the care of God. The writer declares that God is the one who created us. God is the one that provides for us. God has knit us together, beautiful poetic language, knit us together in our mother's womb. The psalmist pours forth speech and says, I'm fearfully and I'm wonderfully made and it's here that, that we find the heart of the first word that I'm trying to communicate to you this morning, that we should not diminish ourselves. There are many within the sound of my voice who are prone to diminish yourself, are prone to envy, are prone to thinking that something is missing. And what God has done in creating you and creating me is creating something that is whole, something that is enough Something there, there isn't something missing. God created you and me, and God knows you and me, and God loves us. The, the Hebrew word for know, to know something, is in this verse, in this uh, section, seven different times. And what the writer is saying is that because God knows you, you are significant. You're significant to God, and you're significant to God's plan for the world. And there's one other word. I, I want to briefly touch on this as I close. The second word that comes that I think reforms our malformed desire for the genuine, for the authentic, is this. That in Jesus Christ, here's the confession of the church, that in Jesus Christ we find the really real and the truly true. In Jesus Christ we actually see the full beauty of humanity. We see the full beauty of divinity. The writer of Colossians put it like this, for in Christ the fullness of the divinity dwells and we have come to fullness in him. I love this line because it uses the Greek word for fullness twice. That Jesus is fully in God and we are fully in Jesus. And this word in the Greek it conveys something of completion. It conveys something of fulfillment. And what the Christian gospel says is that we find our ultimate human fulfillment rooted in the humanity and divinity of Christ. That we find our purpose in his life. That we'll find true joy. That we find true contentment. I know this sounds like preachers speak but the truth of this is when we put ourselves into his identity something mysterious happens, something spiritual happens where we find real contentment and real joy, but we don't stop striving for tomorrow. We still long for tomorrow. We'll still look toward the future tense, but not forsaking the reality that the Christian life is lived in the present tense. There are so many gifts that we have, so many gifts that we bring into our room, into this room today. There's so much of fullness of life, and I know that it's not all perfect, and I know it's not all sunshine and roses. I know it's not all mountaintops, but what I do know is that God cares for us. I do know that God knows us, and I know that we can be found in Christ, and I know that we can find fulfillment and the fullness of life in him. We can be content and fulfilled to live life in the present tense. To do that, may we be found in him, and may we receive the authenticity that makes this world 
a more beautiful, more just, and more faithful place. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.